John chapter 4, of course, is a story of the woman and Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. We spent a, a bit of time going back over that. I don't want to spend that time today. Um, if you don't understand that, then get uh, one of the earlier messages in this series on true worship. And um, we're going to pick up here. Jesus has this conversation with this woman who's come out here. And the whole focus of, this, of our, our view here is this. Is this, is, and you can, this can be taught from any kind of different directions, but the focus that we have here is this woman has come out to where she normally comes every day to draw water, natural need that she has. And there's a gentleman, man sitting there. She doesn't know who he is. And what she doesn't realize is this day she has an opportunity to have an encounter with God face to face. Now he's clothed in flesh because Jesus was God in the flesh. God, the second person of the Godhead, in the flesh. So it's not obvious, as it, as it were in Moses' case, when an angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in his flaming fire and things like that. There were other people that saw him and had no idea who he was. In fact, there were people that had dealings with him, listened to him, and they totally missed who he was, and even some of the disciples weren't sure. Even his own brothers and sisters weren't sure a period of time. And so, so that's not faulting her, but he's in this scriptures we're going to read, what he's endeavoring to do is to lift her eyes off of the natural things of her life and begin to give her a revelation of who he is and what he wants to do for her and then what he wants to do through her, which we'll look at later on. So that's what's going on here. And Jesus says to her, he's already asked her for, for water. And she said, well, it's kind of strange. How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, for, for water? Because Jews and Samaritans didn't speak to one another. It was a racial issue there. And Jesus in verse 10 says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And those of you knew who I am that's talking to you, if you knew who was here, you would ask of him. And we've talked about this in the context of this story. It's not just a nice story, but it relates to us. Every time we come to church, we have the opportunity to have an encounter, a visitation with the living God. I know he lives in you. Um, this is not going against that teaching. We're not talking about the fact that he lives in you. If you're born again, God lives in you by the Holy Spirit. We understand that. But he's called us together, the church together, to worship together, to come together, because there's a, there's a greater presence of God when two or three are gathered in his name. Jesus said, when two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in your midst. Now, he comes in us. But when we gather together, he's not only in us, but he wants to be in our midst. That means among us also. And that's what he's talking about here. That's what we're talking about here. So that's the opportunity, but he's trying to help her to see this opportunity. And he goes on and says, woman, uh, he said, she said, I'd give you living water. And she basically says, well, you know, what do you have to draw with? Uh, our father Jacob gave us this well, you know, and he, he basically, she says, you know, he said, if you would ask of me, I would give you living water. And she, he says, if you knew who it was, I would give it to you, and it would become in you a fountain or a well or a source of water springing up from inside of you into everlasting life. And now she says, okay, now she's, her appetite's whetted. She's now got her eyes beginning to get her curiosity up off of what, what, she's, what she was talking about, what she was looking for. And all she knows at this point is, whatever it is you're offering, I want it. It sounds good to me. That's how most of us came to Christ. Very few of us, maybe none of us, had a thorough understanding of what was happening to us when we came to Christ. It may have been here in this, in this, order, in this sanctuary. It may have been somewhere. In my case, it was my living room. I had no clue what was happening. 
In fact, the great statement I faith, of faith I made to God was, Jesus, I don't know if you're real or not, but if you are, I'm giving you this opportunity to come into my life. Wasn't that gracious of me? <laughs> but see, he takes you where you are. I gave him that opening, and he fluttered in that opening. You give him an opening, so he'll meet you where you are. He'll draw you to a place and meet you where you are. You don't need to understand it. See, it's not a matter of the mind, it's a matter of the heart. And that's what he's working on here. She says, well, sir, give me that water. Now what he says to her is, go call your husband. Now, why is he doing that? We began to talk about that last week. Because before she can receive what he is he has for her, she's got to begin to face truth in her life. Because we're going to see down the road, the key verses in our study here, is God is longing for, he's longing for, yearns for true worshipers. And that's what we're desiring to be. Who worship him in spirit and in truth. And so he's now going to challenge her, give her an opportunity to begin to look honestly at herself and then be willing to be honest with him about herself. And we learned last week, I don't think it was a shock, that when you get honest with God, he's not shocked by what he finds out because he already knows what's going on in there. In fact, he needs you to be honest to him about it because that way you're being honest with yourself and now he can begin to work. And it's interesting because he's going to talk to her about worship. But in order to, to, to lead her to the true worship that he's talking to her about, he's got to begin to deal with things in her life. Not to punish her. He's not angry with her. He's trying to cleanse her of the things that are not right in her life. And what we began to talk about last week, we've already talked about the opportunity that worship presents to us. We've already talked about the privilege that it is. It's not some, because worship is not singing songs in church. We call that earlier part of our service praise and worship, but that doesn't mean we praised and that doesn't mean we worshiped. It means we sang songs. But what he's work, looking for is true worship. True worship. And that's what he longs for every time we come together. He's longing for that true worship. And we discovered that true worship is not something you can just flip a switch. It's not necessarily triggered by a particular song or music or a style or anything. True worship is, a, is out of my heart to God. It's my relationship with Him and we're drawn into it. By Him, we're drawn into it. And we discovered, therefore, we looked in the Old Testament and saw that, and we're going to look there at the end of the day, and it's even more so, that, that, that to, to come into the presence of God was a serious matter. And that it's a privilege and that wherefore we come to this holy God, this righteous God, this pure God, we have to come on His terms. We can't come on our terms. We just can't come in with, you know, with my, my, my coffee and donut. Because so many churches are becoming kind of like, it's like there's, there's not a whole lot of difference between the churches and the movie theater except the content of the presentation. The standards are being lowered and watered down to the point that you can't tell the difference between being in a movie theater and being in a church. And I don't mean just physically. We want the people to be comfortable. Well, part of the problem is people are too comfortable <laughs> with what's going on in their life. And I don't see, as I read my Bible in the Old Testament, we'll see very clearly today how comfortable they were. And around Jesus, they weren't comfortable either. So if you want to be comfortable... 
you're not going to get too close to the presence of God. Because God's a purifying God. But He's not angry. He doesn't do it to destroy us. He does it to set us free from the things that hold us in bondage. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And she answers and says, well, well sir, you know, I, I don't have a husband. See, she was being a little truthful, but not opening up. And he said, that's right, you don't have a husband. But you've had five. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. So she's living in sin. And she says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet. So she's beginning to get a revelation that he's not just some guy at a well. He's a man of God. All right, let's go. We're going to go look in the Old Testament. Because we began to talk last week about the preparation for worship. And the pattern in the Old Testament, they didn't just walk into the presence of God. And I understand we're in the New Testament, and we've talked about that before, that Christ has made a way for us. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 10. Now what's happened here is God has, through exactly what they were talking about here, the school of ministry graduates, the the tabernacle. We've talked about this before. God has brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, out into the wilderness, into into, um, uh, Sinai Peninsula there. And God has now wants to be among his people. Calls Moses to the top of a mountain, gives Moses instructions on what to do. Part of the instructions he gives one of the time up there is that he is to construct this thing called a tabernacle. Tabernacle just means a dwelling place. And it's this tent and a series of curtains and other things that are designed so that God can come down and be among his people. But he only can come down in one room, the Holy of Holies, and above what's called the Ark of the Covenant. Most of you are you know, familiar with that from the movie that was made 20 years ago or so, 30 years ago now. And uh, a lot of inaccuracies in it, but that's okay. It's still, but so that, that God's presence was to come down and dwell there. And so they couldn't just saunter in. The people couldn't just walk in and you know, say, Hi, God, how are you doing today? Only one man, the high priest, could go into that room one day a year, the Day of Atonement, only having gone through certain rituals and wearing certain garments. And if he did it wrong, he died. So this has been instituted, this has been established, the, the tabernacle has now been built, and the next thing God did is He called the priests, which was Aaron and his four sons, and then the Levites, the family that Aaron came from, were to assist him, but the priests were Aaron and his four sons. And now God prescribed a special anointing oil to be made a special way, and He's prescribed a special way that they go through a ceremony of anointing them. It took blood and put it on different parts of them to signify cleansing of them. Their garments are anointed with oil. And that, my point is, that's all now been done. They're now sanctified. They're prepared to go forward. And look what happens. Chapter 10, verse 1. Verse 24, the end of verse 11, chapter 11 says that, and God, when all this was done... God's fire came down on the place. The same fire that came down on the top of the mountain when he first called them out in Exodus 19, which we began talking about. The fire of God came down from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering. When all the people saw this, they shouted and fell on their faces. Chapter 10. Then Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, they're two of his sons, each took in his censer. That was the thing that carried the, that made the incense. It was a, it was a, a gold, and some of them were gold, some of them were brass, uh, container that they would take a coal off of the fire and they would put it in this thing and some of you were in churches where you, they had these things and they would put some uh, uh, 
frankincense or they would put some kind of herb on top of it so that it would burn and leave an aroma which represented prayer, it represented worship. And so they took their censer, each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. Now we began to talk last week about preparing for worship. The first thing we looked at, and we're continuing that discussion today really, is that the beginning of preparing to worship is honoring His Word. We looked at Isaiah 66 and we saw at the end of that that God says what He's longing for is people that will, that will reverence Him and tremble at His Word, which means they will reverence His Word. And we saw the reason for that is you can't reverence God and disregard His Word. Because God and His Word are one. You can't say, I love God and not care about His Word. Jesus taught the disciples that. We saw that in John 14, where Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We talked about the example of a, of a, man, a young man pursuing a, a woman of his dreams. And he sits her down at this table over this romantic meal and says, oh dear, I love you. I love you so much. Oh. What he means by that is, I want you. He may not know fully what that means. He's just expressing the passion in him. I want you. But what she hears is commitment. She hears in I love you. I therefore exclude every other woman from my life. You're my one and only now and forever. I will never pursue or desire another woman. You're the one I've chosen. You're the one I want. And I'm going to give you evidence of it. That's what she hears. That's what she means by love. What he often means is, you're beautiful, I want you. And that's what Jesus is talking about because the disciples loved him the way a man loves a woman that way. I love you, you're beautiful, you're wonderful. And what he wants to hear is commitment. And that's so often where we are when we come to church. We're singing, I love you, I surrender all. I surrender 10%. I surrender whatever I feel like I want to let go of. And that's often where we really are. And yet we, tears come down our cheeks singing the song. There's nothing wrong with singing the song because you, you know, keep pursuing him. Keep pursuing him. Keep pursuing him. Give him an opportunity. He'll work in you. But the point is that's being made, that Jesus was making is, if you really love me, the proof, what I mean by love is not an expression of your emotion. What I mean by love is a commitment to me. To me, personally. And if you're committed to me, you're committed to my word. Now here's an example. Because God had instructed a certain procedure and certain people to, to, to offer this, and they were offering what they wanted to offer, not what God prescribed. That's what it says. Isn't that what it said? They offered profane fire before the Lord. Profane means, the word in Hebrew actually means strange or, or what's not required. They offered, some translations will say strange fire. It means profane. It means, because he goes on and tells us what it is. Before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. All right, so they make a mistake. Verse 2, so fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. Oh, 
and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, their father, this is what the Lord spoke saying. Look at this. By those who come near to me, I must be regarded as holy. Notice that wasn't just an emotion that they felt. They probably did. But they're They disobeyed a known commandment, an instruction. They took casually an an order, instructions on exactly how this worship was to be performed, and they died on the spot. And God tells Moses to speak to their father and tell them, by those that want to draw near to me, I must be regarded as holy. Because how you regard him will affect how you come near him. And before all the people, I must be glorified. I go, Moses goes on now to tell Aaron that they can't go bury their brothers the normal way. They can't mourn. Because that will be a signal to the congregation that everything, there's an emotional attachment here. And what God's saying to look, they crossed the line with me. I want you to treat this morning differently than you would because I want to signal to the congregation, I must be regarded as holy. I was reading that the other day and it's like, I started getting goosebumps, in the, not in a good sense. It's like, oh my goodness. Well, remember a few weeks ago we talked about the New Testament? Remember the New Testament? Yeah. Remember that when you're studying this. That Jesus, we saw in, 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 in Hebrews, where Jesus made a new way to come into the presence of God, where the blood and the rituals that they had to go through, they were, that was foretelling and preparing them to believe what the real ritual was going to be, what the real blood was going to be, and the real sacrifice was going to be. That's what so much of the latter part of Hebrews is about. That Jesus' blood was different than the blood of the bulls and goats. They couldn't, the blood of bulls and goats was not valuable enough to wash away the sin. It just covered it over temporarily. But Jesus being the, the son of God, the righteous son of God that never sinned, his blood was valuable enough because the blood represents his life. His life, his blood was valuable enough to not just cover it over, but to wash the sin away. And then he was able to give it to us that come to him his righteousness. Remember we studied that? But what this tells me See, we don't have to be afraid that if we make a wrong step, fire's going to come down off of the stage and burn us up. But the same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. God's character and His nature haven't changed. We don't have a I was sharing with my wife yesterday. Sharing with her. It's not like God's kind of gotten more mellow in his old age. You know, we're reading when he was younger and full of spit and vinegar and fire, and he's just going, ah, tolerate that. But today's, yeah, I know. You know, it's okay, kids, you know. I think subtly that's what we think. Well, it's a New Testament, it's a new ball game, everything. Here's what it tells us God's the same. The only reason we don't get burned with fire when we don't have the right attitude is because of what Christ did for us. He's telling them, look, to come near to God is serious stuff. If we're going to draw near to God, he says, you must regard me as holy. That doesn't mean sing songs about holiness. That must affect your life, how you conduct yourself, not just in church. 
But when nobody's looking. And then the age we live in, we call the church age, the age of grace. You know what that means? It's a parenthesis in time. That means there was a time before there was grace, and there'll be a time after grace. And if you don't understand this, then we take this grace for granted. We presume upon the grace of God and think that therefore, well, God tolerates everything, it's okay. And that's where so much of the church is. We're not experiencing the power of God. We're not experiencing the, the, the presence of God. Why? Because we're, we're bringing profane fire. And we're not dying because of the blood of Christ. But we're also not experiencing the presence of God. So it's not something to be afraid of. It's something to... First of all, the first reaction I had when I read that was to praise Jesus. (laughs) I don't have to be afraid when I come to church or in my basement or wherever in my car, whenever I'm worshiping God, if I don't do things just the right way, I don't have to be afraid that a bolt of lightning is going to come out of heaven and turn my car into a pile of grease and me into a pile of grease. But that's only because of what Christ did for me. It's not because God's changed. It's not because he's less holy. It's not because what he required has changed. It's because of the blood of Christ. And that's only because of the blood of Christ. It's because of the cross and the cross only. All right. Let's move on a little bit here. Let's go over to... Uh, we're going to begin to look at some stories today and probably into next week. Let's go to Second Chronicles chapter 28. Now, what's happened in, 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 um, in Israel is Solomon died. I can't go through all of this with you, but his, his, his son didn't do things the right way, and Israel ended up divided into two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom called Israel, te- proper Israel, and a southern kingdom called Judah, which was made up of two of the tribes, Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. And... And there's a series of, separate series of kings, although at one point they interrelate a little bit. The northern nation is, if you read through, it's, it's nothing but a parade of so-and-so becomes king and, and, and followed in the footsteps of his father who didn't seek after God. And it gets worse and worse and worse and worse until, it, until I think it's around uh, 750, somewhere in there, 700 B.C. Um, they're just carried off by the, by the, by the Assyrians. The southern nation is a different history. You have, you have very good kings followed sometimes by some kings that eh, aren't so good. And then a good king after that. We're going to pick up with King Hezekiah. This is in, did I tell you where to turn? Second Chronicles. Um, we're going to start in verse, in chapter 28. But before we do, I'm going to tell you what about his father. We're going to start in verse 22 of chapter 28. Now, in the time of his distress, King Ahaz, that's Hezekiah's father, became increasingly unfaithful to the Lord. That is that King Hezekiah. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus. What happened is there was a king of the Assyrian king, Tiglath-Pileser. How'd you like that name? Tiglath-Pileser came down to, to attack and he went, the Hezekiah's father, 
went to Damascus, which we hear a lot about today, went to Damascus to kind of try to talk to, to Tiggy <laughs> and see if he could work some deal with him. While he's there, he goes into their, their, their temple and sees how they worship. And he's impressed with it. So he comes back to Jerusalem and calls his priests together and tears down the parts of the temple of Solomon that were intended for the presence of God, removes some of those articles, changes the way some of them are positioned, and then adds other things and then begins pagan worship, not just out in the streets, but in the temple of God. The king changes who were, and he goes into worship. He wasn't authorized to worship. Say, how come fire didn't fall then? Because the presence of God wasn't there. We talked about that last week. I mean, when, when Eli was the high priest and there was prostitution taking place on the doorstep of the temple, nobody died. But God's presence wasn't there. Ananias and Sapphira come to church and just lie about the amount of their offering and boom, they're dead on the spot. What's the difference? The presence of God was there. And so, this is what's going on, and Hezekiah becomes king. And what he's beginning here is a revival, but I want you to show, see the preparation that goes into it. We'll go down to chapter 29 now. And Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abijah, the son of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. In the first year of his reign... In the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. So what Ahaz, his father, done is he finally just boarded it up. Shut church down, boarded it up. And the first thing that his son does is he tears the boards down and opens the sanctuary up. He opens the temple up and begins to repair it. Verse 4, Then he brought in the priests and the Levites and gathered them in the east square and said to them, Hear me, Levites, because that was the tribe that God had ordained to oversee and manage the tabernacle and then the temple. Said to them, Hear, O Levites, now sanctify yourselves and sanctify the house of the Lord of your fathers and carry out the rubbish from the holy place. Wow, what a verse that is. Notice it starts by, first of all, sanctify yourself. Sanctify means, in that case, it was ceremonial. Things that they had done that made them unclean in God's eyes. That has nothing to do with dirt, although some of it did have some practical things with regard to that. In other words, go get yourself right in God's eyes by what you've been told, what you know you're supposed to do. Then, let's go into the temple and sanctify it. Get it right in God's eyes. And then notice he says, then take the rubbish... There was things that had been brought into the temple that God had not ordained to be there. There were things that the, that the king had brought in and established in there, physical things and practices that God had not ordained. And he says, the next thing you do is take, and he called it rubbish. So just because something's in the house of God, you can have rubbish in the house of God. And I'm not talking about something on the floor in front of your feet. I'm talking about practices, attitudes, my way of doing things, my ministry, this is the way I like it. That's what I want to bring in. That's what, has, that's what Ahaz did. He brought in what he wanted. He brought in what he thought was right. Not what God said, what he wanted. And after all, he's king. He forgot he was only king because God permitted him to be king. 
and that as king he was representing God's people. He was a servant of God to manage and to oversee and protect and guide God's people. He forgot all about that and he became king so he could do what he wanted to do. And Hezekiah says, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to sanctify yourself. You can't do anything to change anything unless you're right. The next thing we need to do is we need to get the temple right before God. And then we can take the things that are rubbish, that are not God didn't put there, and remove them. For our fathers, verse 6, have trespassed and done evil in the sight of the eyes of the Lord, and they've forsaken Him and have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord and have turned their backs on Him. They have also shut up at the doors of the vestibule, put out the lamps, and have not burned incense and offered burnt offerings in the holy place to the Lord God of Israel. Therefore the wrath of God fell upon Judah and Jerusalem, and He has given them up to trouble and to desolation, to jeering as you see with your eyes. I wonder if some of the trouble in our lives could because maybe we're not exactly right. You don't hear a lot of teaching on that anymore. Well, we live under grace and we'll pray God, you know, well, how come my prayers aren't getting answered? The first place maybe we need to look is, are things right in my life with what I know? Am I right before God? I don't mean perfect because there isn't anybody in here you'll see that's perfect except Jesus, of course. Verse 9. For indeed, because of this, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now it's in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord God of Israel that his fierce wrath may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, that you should minister to him with burnt incense. Then these Levites arose, and he goes through the names of them on down, to verse 15. And they gathered their brethren, sanctified themselves, and went according to the commandment of the king at the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. Then the priests went into the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and brought out all the debris that they found in the temple, all the stuff that had been brought into the house of God that God was contrary or not what God had ordained. And they had to, bring, had to get it out. They had to get it out of the temple to the court of the house of the Lord, and the Levites took it out and carried it down to the book Kidron. They threw it in the river. Now they began to sanctify on the first day of the month, and on the eighth day of the month, they came to the vestibule of the Lord, so that they sanctified the house of the Lord in eight days, and on the sixteenth day of the first month they finished. Then they went back to the king and said, We've cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar, the burnt offerings with all its articles, the table, the showbread, and all its articles. Not only that, verse 19. Moreover, all the articles which King Ahaz in his reign had cast outside in his transgression, we've prepared and sanctified, and there they are before the altar. So what they went and they found the things he'd taken out, and he, they brought them back into where they belonged. But before they brought them back in, they sanctified them. Sanctified, I mean, they dedicated to the Lord's service not for what it was used for. Now, it's not in this, in this version. There's another version of this story, which is over in, in, first, in Second Kings. In that, there's an interesting verse in there where it says that when Hezekiah began to do this, one of the things he took was the brazen serpent that Moses has made. You remember the story? Where, where, the, where there's, a, there's, a, there's sin in the camp, there's snakes biting people, and Moses cries out to the Lord, what am I to do? And God says, make a form of a snake and put it on a pole 
a brazen, a brass snake, and lift it up. And when people, if they're bitten, when people look at it, they'll be healed. That's what Jesus refers to in John 3 when he says, As Moses lift the serpent up, so I have to be lifted up. That serpent, that, that bronze serpent was a, was a symbol of Christ. Because that represented, if we can't go through all the details of it, but it represented sin. Snakes represent sin in the Bible. And the brass represents judgment. So that brass serpent on a pole represented their, uh, some, someone on a pole and their sin was judged on that pole. And that's what Jesus said. It's a, it's, a, it's a type of me and what I'm going to do. Moses took that and destroyed, I mean, excuse me, Hezekiah took that and destroyed it. That sacred thing. Why? Because if you read, they were using it to burn incense to pagan gods. So here's something Moses made ordained by God, but because it was defiled by using it for a, for, to worship a, 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 a pagan gods, Hezekiah destroyed it. Wow. You're serious. But see, when you're getting serious about drawing near to God, we do need to be serious. We have a choice to make. We can have church the way we've always had it, and we can either feel good or not feel good. I like this. I don't like that. They're changing the color of this. I don't like that. They like this. I like this. I like this music. I don't like that. We can do that. All, you know, go on and cook along like that and feel nice and feel good and say, isn't Faith Christian Center wonderful? And completely miss God. What God's called this church to do. What God's called you to do. We're facing extremely difficult times. I mean, it's getting almost worse by the day. I began a series on Wednesday night of how to prepare yourself for that. One of the ways to prepare yourself for that is to do what God's called you to do. The safest place to be is in the middle of God's will, seeking after Him, regardless of what's going on around you. The most dangerous place to be is to take it into your own hands and try to handle it yourself because you'll handle it the way the world handles it and you will be absorbed into the world. We are at a time in history where we have to make a tough a choice. It's not really tough. It's a simple choice. It's going to be tough on our flesh. But we have to make a choice. I'd much rather stand here and preach to you how much God wants to bless you and do things for you. It's much more fun. But I have a responsibility before God to tell you the truth. In, in love, truth as I believe God shows it to me. And every time I get up here, my prayer that morning or that night, if it's a Wednesday night, is God... I'm there to represent you. Please, I don't want to say anything that is not what you want to say and say it the way you want to say it. It's too serious. It's too important a time. And that's what we see here as we look at this. All right, let's go on because it turns wonderful. It's great. Well, do you see what happens here? So that's what they've done. They brought back in. Okay, now verse 20. Now Hezekiah rose early, gathering the rulers of the city, and they went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls and seven... Now what he's going to begin to do, now that the, house, now that the temple's ready, they had not practiced the Passover in years, or at least the right way. So what he's preparing now is a, basically the Passover worship. But he had to get the temple ready, and he had to get the people ready in order to do that. And now what he does is, but before he can, they can go into the temple to perform the Passover, 
they go through a series of offerings outside it. I don't mean money offerings, sin offerings and different offerings of animals and sacrifices under the prescribed order that God had given Moses when he gave him the instructions on Mount Sinai. And they're doing this as preparation. And that's what's going on here. We're not going to read down through all of it. So they basically present the, you know, they go through the series of offerings outside the temple. Burnt offerings on the the altar. Verse 31. By the way, they were singing in the process of this. Verse 31, Hezekiah answered and said, Now that you've consecrated yourself to the Lord, come near and bring sacrifices and thanks offering into the house of the Lord. So the assembly brought in sacrifices and thank offering, and as many as were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. Their hearts been touched. And they go on down through this. Now look down at verse 36. Then Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people. See, God was doing it, but they had to be willing. Since the events took place so suddenly. That struck me. Because we sometimes look at things, oh my goodness, how can things get turned around? How can things get right? Because notice what it says here. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced that God had prepared the people. In the New Testament, there, there are basically two words for time in Greek. One is the word chronos, which is time in the sense that you and I mean it. It's, you know, well, it's whatever time it is. But the other word, which is also translated time in English, is kairos. And some of you may have heard that taught before, but kairos has a different connotation. It's a, t- it's a period, it's a moment chosen by somebody for a purpose. And in the Bible context, it refers usually to something, a time God has chosen. See, there are times when we look in the Word of God and we say, this is what we want to believe God for and we want to begin to do it. And God will get involved in that. But there are other times, Kairos times, chosen times, when God says, this is what I want to do and I want people that are with me to get involved in what I want to do. Jesus' birth was a Kairos moment. God chose that time. And people got involved around that to cooperate with that. His crucifixion. Remember Jesus said Satan was after him at one point in his own hometown and they were going to try to throw him off a cliff. He says he walked through them because it wasn't his time. It wasn't the moment appointed by God for him to die. And when it was the moment appointed by time... All kinds of people worked around to cooperate with that. Even people didn't know that's what they were doing. To the point that the high priest that day, the day before, the high priest blessed the sacrifice because the high priest under the old covenant had to do that. He found it fitting. He says to those people when they said, well, you know, what are we going to do with this guy? He says, wait a minute, don't you understand? It's better for one man to die than that a whole nation. He was approving the sacrifice under the old covenant as acceptable under the old covenant, Christ as the sacrifice. So the point is, when there's a moment, one of these moments, God's saying, I want to do something now. And I'll gather people around me that want to work with me on it. And then we have the choice of whether we're going to do that. I believe that's a time we're either in or approaching. 
And when that happens, this is what they're talking about. This did not work because Hezekiah was so good. It helped. This did not work because of all the people. This worked because God says, I want to do something now. And the people were willing to get in line with what God wanted to do because this is what it says. It says, verse 36, And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had prepared the people since the events took place so suddenly. I can't tell you that God's spoken to me or told me this, but I, I believe that what's going to happen is going to take place suddenly. Does that mean in moments? I don't know what that means. It means we need to be ready. What I didn't cover is in chapter 30. Is, oh, it's in 30, I haven't gotten to 30 yet. Okay. So then Hezekiah, chapter 30, sent all of his, to all of Israel and Judah, and they all wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, Ephraim and Manasseh are in the northern kingdom. What's happening here is the people are now so excited, they're trying to reach out and tell others what's going on. It's called evangelism. Remember the woman at the well? When she saw who he was, she didn't sit there talking to him. She went out to tell about the man she just met. They're now having an encounter with God, seeing it working, and they're, they're, what they want to do is, we want to go tell our brothers in the north. So they send emissaries up into the northern tribes. Now what's happened is most of those tribes have been carried off into captivity and destroyed, but there's some still up there. And so they send emissaries up into the northern tribes, Dan and Manasseh, up north, trying to say, come on down to Jerusalem. We're performing the the original Passover, we're going to do this, right. Come on, God's moving down there. They didn't have to be told to do that. They wanted to do that. They were so excited because of what God was doing there, they had to go tell others. Ever notice why the times when Jesus heals somebody and he says, now don't go tell anybody? Jesus didn't have to work people up. Now come on, here's your five steps. He had the opposite thing. He had to say, look, don't, don't tell anybody because the problem was if, it's, if they told them, he'd have a premature crowd. They would get in his way of getting where he had to go. And, he, and the people he said, don't tell anybody, what did they do? They went and told somebody. <laughs> Jesus couldn't keep them from witnessing. Maybe the problem in the church, the reason we're not better in evangelism is we, have no, we don't know what good news we're telling them about. It's a concept to us. It's a principle to us. It's an obligation to us. It wasn't to these people. It wasn't to the woman at the well. It wasn't to the people that Jesus healed. It wasn't to Jairus when his daughter was raised from the dead. Now what happens is, Verse 6, and the runners went throughout all Jerusalem, all Israel and Judah with letters from the king and the elders and spoke according to the command of the king. Children in Israel, return to the Lord your God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and then he will return to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers or your brethren who trespassed against the Lord God of your fathers, so he gave them up to desolation as you are. Don't be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourself to the Lord. Enter his sanctuary which he has sanctified forever and serve the Lord your God that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brethren and your children will be, will, be, will be treated with compassion by those who laid them into captivity. In other words, what you do is going to affect how your brothers are treated in captivity. 
Is it possible that what we do with God affects our children? Is it possible that what we would do with God affects our relatives that we've been praying for for so long and don't see anything happen? Maybe there's a connection between what we're doing with God and God's ability ability to reach out to our families. Verse 10, so the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Mass as far as Zebulun, and they, and they laughed at them and mocked them. Nevertheless, some from Asher, Manasseh, Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. And also the hand of the God was on Judah to give them singleness of heart to obey the command of the king and the leaders at the word of the Lord. So they gather together now, those that were willing to come, and they get there and realize they don't have enough priests who've been consecrated in order to perform the sacrifice. So they have to use some Levites, which are the family, but they weren't authorized to be the priests. They have to use some of them. Then they've got some of the people that did come down from the north and discover that they haven't been sanctified, haven't gone through the right ritual to be sanctified. And what happens is Moses, there's an interesting verse in here, which is verse 18. For a multitude of the people, many from Ephraim and Manasseh, that's the northern brethren, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. Well, how come they didn't die? But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the good God, may the good Lord provide atonement for everyone who prepares his heart to seek God and the Lord God of his fathers, though he is not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. In other words, they didn't do it right, but their heart was right. They came down to seek God. And they didn't do everything just right, but they came to seek him, and Hezekiah interceded for them and says, I know they didn't do this right, but their heart, they're here because their heart is to seek you. And notice God's response. Verse 20. And the Lord God listened to Hezekiah and healed the people. And the children of Israel who were present at Jerusalem kept the Passover of the unleavened bread. Seven days with great gladness, and the Levites and the priests praised the Lord day by day, singing to the Lord, accompanied by loud instruments. And Hezekiah gave encouragement to all the Levites, verse 22, who taught the good knowledge of the Lord, and they ate throughout the feast seven days of offering peace offerings and making confessions to the Lord of their fathers. So seven days was the days of the Passover. Verse 23, then the whole assembly agreed to keep the feast another seven days and kept it another seven days with gladness. In other words, they didn't want to leave church. The, the, the prescribed period was over and they said, this is so good. Can we do another seven days? So the king goes into his storehouse and brings out what they're going to need to do that and he contributes it. There's a revival going on here. Then you go into the next chapter and now what he begins to do is he begins, because this has all happened because he's got things in order, but they've got to rebuild, they've got to establish a system. So he begins to establish a system of the priests, an order for them. He begins to establish training. He begins to establish something so that this can continue and go on. What's happened here is a revival. What's happened here is a revival. Why? Because it started by recognizing where they've gone was wrong and realizing we have to get things right in God's eyes. And it started by going, getting rid of the things in their lives and in the temple that were not right in God's eyes, that God hadn't put there. There's a verse in Matthew 15, 13. It's one of the verses God's given to me. 
where Jesus said, whatever my father did not plant must be uprooted. In other words, what's planted in his kingdom, in his church, must be what God's planted, not what we've planted. Aaron's sons brought to the Lord what they wanted, and he was called profane fire. Cain brought to God the sacrifice he wanted, not the one that was prescribed. Why? Because he said, I am a holy God. I am a holy God. Remember the children of Israel, back when we first started talking about this, when God said in Exodus 19, I'm going to come down on the mountain because I want them to come out. I want my people to see me. I want to have an encounter with them because it will change them. And they began to see the rumblings and fire and they ran away. And they said, Moses, you go talk to him. This is too scary for us. You go talk to him, and we'll do whatever he said. And as we discovered, that may have been their intention, but they didn't do what he said. See, God knows what he's doing, because he said, call them out here so they'll see what I'm like, so that they'll obey me, so that they won't sin. God knows how to keep us from getting in trouble. God knows how to keep us right if we do it the way he says to but if we do it the way we think, the history of man proves we may say we'll do what he says, but the reality is we won't. And my brother and sisters, we live in a time where we can't afford to do things our way. We can't afford to do what I want. I can't af- we can't afford to do what you want. We've got to do what he wants. But if we'll do what he wants, his protection, his provision, his blessing, and his presence are there. You can't have the presence of God and not reverence His Word, respect His Word, and keep His Word. We can't have it our way. It's His way. But His way is infinitely the best way. Let's pray.